I would love that. It yeah. would be a nightmare for you, but I would love it. <clears throat> if we had these stock six audio files or whatever, it wouldn't be too hard. Um, you need like six different farts? Is that what you're asking for? Oh, God, I forgot I do a podcast with Django. <laughs> uh, so should I confirm? We never we never resolved that. I think that you should confirm. Okay. I'm going to do it right now. All right, confirmed. Cool. October 2nd? October 3rd. October 3rd. I got to make sure my mom doesn't try to come. To a perfectly acceptable podcast, episode 142. Mm. Getting old. Heavens to Murgatroyd. You know, we're two guys that own a comic shop in Bellingham, Washington, and every week we get a whole bunch of the comic books that we're super excited about, and we come back to our little Papcast studio, Papcast Atorium. Oh, yeah. And uh, record a podcast about all the books we were excited about in our week uh, and engage in a variety of tangents, either related to or unrelated to the comic books, the comic shop that we know, love, and own, and the comings and goings of our lives. I'm Jeff, and I'm still just sort of writing this creative high that House of X is giving me, just suckling at the teat of infographic beauty. I'm Django, and Jeff makes me sweaty when he talks about those books. He does. He's all brow-tow brow right now. Hey, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, I've got two things that I tell people are special about our store. Yeah, okay. Do you have any? No. Like, I, th I think we have two things that we can legitimately claim as unique aspects of our store. And I'm going to continue to claim our unique aspects of our store until someone proves me wrong. I like that. I tell them that we are the farthest north comic book store in the lower 48. Or the Continental. No, because the Continental includes... Alaska? Alaskans. <sighs> yeah, so... Love you, know, Alaska, but... I don't want to mess with them. But yeah. in the lower 48, we're the furthest north, as far as I can tell. I like it. And I'd love to hear from somebody in, like, the, the little bald spot of Maine, if mm. we're wrong. And I also tell them that we're the only comic book store that has a hypnotist in the basement. <laughs> that is a new thing that we've got. That's true. Uh, let's talk about some comics. Yeah, let's spoil the shit out of them, let's too. Let's spoil some comics. The spoilers this week are sponsored by Quapo and a Third. Is. <laughs> <laughs> Roman is. Sponsored by Roman is, a new clothing company. Uh, we've been uh, stocking their shirts for almost a week when you hear this podcast, yeah. if you're if you're on the ball and download it the day it comes out, which yeah. is usually Mondays. Um, it's very simple. It's uh, just shirts that, that are about Roman. Big fans of the guy. Every design they've done is just about Roman. Um, I also want to say that we <laughs> are, uh, as of the time of recording, almost 21 days and nine minutes away from a new Tool album. So I'm pretty excited. I know you all listeners are very excited. We're doing that together. 13 years. This week, we're going to talk about House <laughs> of X number two. Tool. Number Tool. Uh, Sinestro. Year of the Villain Sinestro number one. The Island of Dr. Moreau number one. Berserker Unbound number one. 
absolute carnage, number one. <laughs> what were you going to say? I, I'm reading them upside down, and I was going to say carnage absolute. I was like, mm. that doesn't doesn't fall out no, of your mouth right. It's a right. cleaning product. Yeah. Uh, Lois Lane, number two. Green Lantern, <laughs> number 10. And Deceased, number four. I was really hoping as I read those that I'd get to sneak a schlee in there. Yeah, you didn't. No. I'm actually, at this point, when we sort of arrange them, I'm actively discouraging the inclusion of threes. <laughs> Um, All right, everybody. House of X number two by Jonathan Hickman, Pepe Larraz, and Marta Gracia. Um, Django, this was my favorite issue of the series. Mm -hmm. Between Powers of Ten and House of X. 100%. Okay. So we're we're there on that. This did something amazing. I don't have to sort of uh, step by step what happened in this issue because it's a pretty simple conceit for an infinite amount of complexity there. We spend the whole issue with Moira McTaggart, who has uh, been in both of the other issues, or no, Powers of Ten. She showed up and talked to Charles on a bench, and those are the final two pages of this issue. This issue is just a biography of Moira McTaggart, who previously we have known as a a past love interest of Charles Xavier's. She ran a school that was not the Xavier Institute, but also had mutants on it, I believe, but I don't think she was a mutant, and that's circa giant size X-Men number one. I didn't, I I started reading after that. Yeah, I haven't read any of that era, but I've been looking into it. so I the was, whole them going to Krakoa and giant size X-Men number one is intimately related to some stuff that was happening with Moira at the time. I wasn't even born when it came out. Yeah, I know, I remember when you were born. Yeah. You're such a little guy. Was X, Giant Size X-Men number one born as long before me as I was before you? <laughs> so anyway, Moira, <laughs> in this issue, we learn that Moira is a mutant. And Django and I don't know if that's a change to continuity. Yeah, like I jumped onto X-Men right around 281. So like Cable and Bishop era. Yeah. Uh, right when it was super rad. Is that I what would was say, happening Right at the same time as X-Men number one coming out? Uh, right before that, yeah. Okay. Yeah, like within a year or two of X-Men number one, I, I started reading X-Men. I'm always curious what was happening <laughs> in Uncanny at the time that the Lee and uh, Claremont stuff was happening. Uh, well, Lee and Claremont were writing and drawing Uncanny, and right. then it switched over. And and no one really talks about Uncanny for that period. Yeah, yeah, because they can't find them under the stacks of X-Men number one that they have. <laughs> Highest selling comic book. <laughs> but I remember her from that era and I don't remember her being a mutant at all. That's just a long way to say that. So the first page of this is a four panel life to death summary of Moira McTaggart's very human life. But what happens at the end of that is something fascinating and it's that when she died, she was reincarnated back into the womb uh, of her life. And what we learn is that this whole issue is her living a life, dying and being reincarnated back into the womb when and she can still remember everything that's happened from her immediately previous life, but all of the previous <clears throat> lives. Um, so she's, you could say, stuck in a time loop, but she's reliving her life over and over again, very scientifically too. Oh God, which I love. so science, so, so Hickmanly. Like, okay, this wasn't great last time. So let's do some A/B testing here and see what happens if I do this. And she does it, yeah, in such an interesting way. I, I love the toll that it takes on her. She goes mm-hmm. from being just a human to then, you know, trying to do well for mutant kind, but then being really turned off by her power. And then her third life, she's like trying to, she creates a cure for the mutant gene. And then she meets Destiny and Mystique and they 
Destiny is a mutant that I loved seeing in this because we had the lead figure of Destiny. It just wouldn't sell for like the first oh, three years the I worked shop. here. Yeah, yeah. We had lead figures, and that one just wouldn't sell because no one had heard or talked about this character. I thought I threw this away. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and she's able to see the future, and she understands what's going on with Moira, and she says, "You just spent your whole life." punishing your people you didn't get a chance to use this mutant cure but if you were to do it it would destroy all mutant kind and she and mystique murder the fuck out of moira and mm-hmm. say like do this again we'll know because we can read the future we'll come to you uh try to kill me beforehand i'll be able to see it she says that we're intrinsically re- you know, like linked for the rest of our lives and all of those further lives because she can see her future and, and she's a, a time traveler so Isn't, did- well time <clears throat> looper so then she changes her tactic, right? But did you get the feeling that that was Hickman coming up with this concept and then saying, oh, well, this is what she would do, and then having to defeat his own concept in Moira? I guess I just sort of, yeah, maybe, or I guess kind of thought of it as establishing rules. Yeah. And I really liked that, like, Hickman establishes, I think he's better than just about anybody at establishing rules that he can then break and circumvent to make things interesting, but I think that he is very good at establishing rules, whereas a lot of people try to not have rules. And, right. And, I, I think and the then the fans are, are like, whoa, but what if right. this, why doesn't she just, So it, how come one, she doesn't? At one point, like, she, and she, you know, so in a couple of her lives, she's met Charles, she is not into Charles on like her second life. In the third life, she does get into him and he reads her mind and they, it kind of illustrates the Marvel universe as we know it, going through the giant size X-Men and the Phoenix taking over the X-Men and then Days of Future Past killing them and she dies again. And on her fifth life, she and Charles start a more extreme version of that. Her seventh life, she hunts down everybody that's associated with Trask who created the Sentinels that were hurting them. But then they find out that the Trasks didn't make Sentinels like fire. It was a discovery. It wasn't an invention. It was going to be happening either way. Sentinels is. Oh, I love it. It's so Hickman. Her eighth life, she decides to join up with uh, Magneto. Her oh, that's that's her ninth life, she joins up with Apocalypse because it was just sort of this this one thing she had not tried yet. And then on her tenth life, that's when she approaches Charles Xavier on the bench, as we saw in Powers of Ten, number one, and it replays that scene. But we have a totally different context. We have a totally different context. So, like, this issue has redefined everything we've seen before. And then we get this amazing Hickman six-page, nine-pronged timeline showing all the significant moments from the nine lives of Moira McTaggart that we've seen of the ten. We got an email question that is tied right into this uh, from Nathan Butcher and Matt Goff. And the first question was, what happened in her sixth life? And I was like, well, let me take it. It should say it. And, don't. It, and I read this issue two times, loved it, bathed in it, rubbed it in my body, did not notice that it never talks about her sixth life, doesn't show it on the timeline. On the chart, there's a big blank space where it should be. I didn't even notice it. Or, <laughs> it was just whatever. Um, and then they also asked, how the heck does her mutant power work? How could her body mutate to something so metaphysical? So I love <clears throat> this mechanism. It's very Hickman to me. It's also like... We have a subscriber uh, here whose name is Tony Pritchard, and he is a professor up at Western. He wrote a book called Nanotext that I read that was really interesting, but it was kind of the idea of how how can you maximize the amount of information in a small space, not just like on a digital 
programming computer way, but also maximizing the amount of information. It talks a lot about metaphor. And this is such an interesting thing to me, because the way that Hickman does it here, because how can we make somebody really intelligent? Well, they can learn a lot, or they can be doing a life loop where like, mm -hmm. Every time she dies, she packs a new entire life of information into a baby. And, and now we're like, we're maximizing the amount of ways that a human being can be living a life f for the quote unquote first time, but also having an amount, like a huge amount of experience. Is she a mutant though? Right? Because I, I hadn't thought of that, but this is a ridiculously powerful mutant ability, right? So... Do we know for sure that she's a mutant and not in the like... timeline? It says mutant power manifestation, like the big center thing is like age thirteen or whatever. Mutant manifestation. Okay. So we, to the best of our ability. So Hickman's telling us that it, she is a mutant. I love the mystery that it sets up. I'm not sure that I like that method of setting up the mystery, which is it's it's a narrative mystery, right? So it's not a mystery to the characters so far. It's not a mystery to Moira, probably. Right. Is this is a mystery that Hickman has kind of convoluted for us by withholding information? Yeah, intentionally so it's like, omitted. It's a storytelling yeah. mystery more than a story mystery. And I didn't. And that can go it. either way for me. I can either be like, okay, cool, I'm glad you told the story in that order and gave me that suspense, or I can be like, uh, that's dumb. Yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm trusting this guy. If if this issue hadn't got me back on the horse. You were ready to go. As, uh, as some people say. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I may not have kept reading Powers of Ten. With well, this one being so good and tying into Powers of Ten, I'm probably going to keep reading it. I'll probably even go back and read it probably not as many times as you guys have, but I'll reread this at least once before the, the series is over. This, this issue was really, really good. Well, I'm I, I love the conceit of it. I love the... I, I don't even I don't know enough about the X Men or Moira to know how much of it is retconned, but I don't care if yeah. all of it or none of it is. It's it's a really well told story. I think you could even jump into just this issue and really have a good time reading it. Yeah, well I'm glad that you dug it. I I am of course going to give it a perfect ten. I think it's again I'm I haven't enjoyed reading comic books as much as these Hickman X Men books in in a, a long while. I give it an eight and a half. Uh, yes. I can't get past the kind of milk toast art. Um, it is. It's, it's serviceable, and I can't say much more about it than that. I, I wasn't confused or lost, so good job, but I wasn't interested in the art, and uh, I can't quite justify going higher than that on, on a book that didn't uh, didn't deliver for me artistically. What's up next, baby boy? Oh, is that me? Oh, yeah. M My me, precious me baby am? man. Me am? Me am you, yes, Lanyap. Oh, Lapiam. <laughs> Year of the Villain, Sinestro number one by Mark Russell. Yildere Sinar. Spell that. Dude, it's Mark Russell. Yeah, so that's the thing, everybody. It's Mark Russell writing Sinestro, Year of the Villain. So we've got a main DC character entrenched in a DC event here. I don't know if you know how much I care about Year of the Villain. I have a vague idea because I have a similar rating. It's it's approaching zero. Yeah. And I don't know if you know how much I like Green Lantern just as as a like a world. I bet half as much as me. I'll bet half as much as I care about Year of the Villain. Like I'd rather read 
15 year of the villain comics than 15 random Green Lantern comics. It just yeah. never really worked for me. But then they stuck fucking Mark Russell on this, and I have to read it because <laughs> there's not a single comic by book all the Mark Russell books that I haven't read and owned by Mark Russell, and he does his thing here. I, I've said it over and over. There's not a lot else for me to say about how much I like Mark Russell and, and the lessons he teaches us. Uh, but you, Jeffrey. 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 Jeff. You, Jeff? Jeffrey. Oh, I'm so confused. Jeffrey. You, Frey. Yeah. Uh, you had a good point about this book earlier today. Well, yeah. So my, what I think is, let me yell at the mic here. What I think is really interesting about this book is I was going into it. I think that we probably had the same concern, which is like, love Mike, Mark Russell, want to see him write anything. Ambivalent about Sinestro. <laughs> ambivalent about Sinestro, ambivalent about a DC event. How is my guy going to fit into, like, he's he's always been sort of rescued by the fact that he's doing his entirely own thing. He was doing Flintstones, so he didn't really need to have any regard for where or how they fit in. Right. Um, and his, his other current books are very similar to that, like Wonder Twins, Snagglepuss. This one is, is rooted in a thing. You can tell that DC is raising their stock on this <clears throat> character, like this writer. They're yeah. saying, we want to have you be a person that writes a lot of stuff for us. And this book was exactly that. It was not the top tier Mark Russell books. Right. But it was clearly Mark Russell learning how to use his voice to be kind of a corporate guy. Like, how can I combine who I am and the uniqueness of how I write in the way where I have to worry about uh, continuity and characters and making sure a certain type of thing is influenced there? And you know what he did in this issue? He did the Flintstones issue number one lesson about uh, workers' rights. This is these, like, beings that can regenerate. And what they find out is that in order to regenerate, they're filled with smaller races that live and die in a millisecond. And we're 20 milliseconds? I think it's 0.08 seconds or something <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah, something ridiculously small. And so... Um, in order to defeat these guys who can't be killed because every time you cut off an arm, these beings that are living lifetimes and generations inside of them in, in the blink of an eye are rebuilding their bodies. Sinestro basically sends a little tiny version of himself in there to undermine the workforce and uh, basically turns them into sort of like modern lazy Americans. In order to defeat these juggernauts, and ah, it it it's that fucking thing that he does every time. It's that fucking thing that he does. I can't talk does. about him without swearing. But it's so awesome to see him fluidly do that. Yeah, totally shackled to DC saying like, you know, they were like, hey, we need a bunch of people to write these one shots that all do this one thing. You know, like AMR. Yeah, like we'll give you a lot, and you know, he was like, well, it's a lot of money. I'm not super f comfortable with that, and it's not necessarily what I super want to do, but I could probably do that for this. I mean, you know, like not to be super jaded, but I imagine that's kind of how it went. And he did it really well. And it's not my favorite Mark Russell comic, but yeah, it is that c taking life lessons and sociopolitical things that are happening right now and putting it into a comic book. I don't want to put words in his mouth. Yeah. But I would guess that he likes a challenge more than anything. Yeah. Because if you look at the books that he's done, you know, like he, Flintstones, yeah, a first-time comic writer gets the Flintstones. I, I would take that job from DC if they if they had enough 
belief in me, right? Right. Um, but as as his career develops, he's taking on kind of more and more bizarre projects Lone and Ranger, things with Red Sonia, Red Sonia, dude. Yeah. I'm reading Red Sonia. Yeah. You ever read Red Sonia? Uh, no. Yeah. Me neither. I would never. And <laughs> there's a lot of people reading it right now that have never read it because of him. I love it. Yeah. And and so like my feeling is that he's taking these constraints that people are willing to put on him and using them as uh, as just a way to kind of hone his craft. And I'll bet that he I'll bet that he jumps at the the chance to write more and more constrained things until we see some totally creator own thing come out of him. I'd give this one a seven. I think it was a good Mark Russell comic. I'm going to give it a seven and a half just for the little, the, the scene with all the hippies, the, the little hippie aliens that die in a quarter of a second. Yeah, that was good. Um, yeah, I, I, I thought it was, uh, it had some teeth. And the interesting thing is if it wasn't Mark Russell and somebody had made me read this, I would have thought it was a chore until almost the end when I realized how good it was. Right. It's, I do want to throw out everybody, um, this week, uh, Savage Avengers number four came out. And, oh, is Gath uh, in there? Gath and a Thirth were in Gath here. Gath and a Thirth. Gath and a Thirth and Jotun Lau and Ga- Mr. La- yeah, so. You got marbles in your mouth, boy. Uh, yeah. Jotun Lau, Gath my Thirth. Um, okay. So now we've got the Island of Dr. Moreau written by H.G. Wells. But we've got a sweet, <laughs> sweet adaptation by Ted Adams and Gabriel Rodriguez here. I was really excited about this because I've never seen Island of Dr. Moreau. I've never read it. The story fascinates me. And then the lock and key artist did the art on it. That was so, yeah, that was what sold me on it was the lock and key artist. Right. And holy cow, this guy's a good, uh, a good artist. He really is. This is... I don't like this style quite as much as the lock and key art. I think the lock and key art maybe had like a thicker ink line or something. I think it had a lot of outlines to people. Like Yeah. Yeah, I think there was like a white outline around a lot of people. It was it was just a little bit but I think this has almost got more of like a P. Craig Russell thing, which I think works really well yeah. for adaptations. Like it's like if P. Line. Craig Russell let his models move when he was photographing them. But it's troubling. So have you read this book? Have you seen the movies? Do you know about this story? I know an amount about all of it. I don't think I actually ever read The Island of Dr. Moreau, but I read, I had An Island of Dr. Moreau. It was either a Marvel movie adaptation or a Classics Illustrated when I was a kid. And I read that and I liked it and I talked to my dad about it and like I I understood the story pretty well. And then at some small bookstore in the middle of nowhere, I found the return to The Island of Dr. Moreau by definitely not H.G. Wells. And uh, there's a sex scene in there on page 99, I believe, that is between a dude and a bunch of mermaids. And it's not explicit at all. But the line that stuck with me forever and ever was, we did things that night that we were ashamed of in the morning. Wow. And I thought that was super hot. One time uh, when I was in eighth grade, I somehow got an all-text novel book called Letters to Penthouse 19. Oh, that's a good book. And I ran home. I didn't run home. I, I ran towards my home and then went up the big Calva Mountain Hill and sat in next to a rock. Kind of a three-legged run. <laughs> three-legged <laughs> lean. Uh, and read that pretty good. This didn't have anything to do with that. <laughs> no, this this didn't at all. <laughs> um, 
Boy, we got sidetracked, buddy. Tangents, baby. Listen, uh, this is a pretty straight retelling of The Island of Dr. Moreau, I think. Uh, except that, uh, instead of the the main character being a dude, it's a woman. Oh, was it not a woman? Shipwrecked. It wasn't a woman in the in the original. I think that's a cool change to make. Yeah, and they talk about it in the back matter here. I don't usually read back matter, but I wanted to know why. I read a little bit of back matter in this yeah. one. I assumed that it was a woman originally, because I'm not familiar with this story at all. I like that. But, but it... There is this almost like Dr. Moreau's lieutenant type guy that we spend time with. And he's just a creep. Like, he, he's yeah. not, like, overtly a creep, but he's clearly a, one of the few male humans left on this island. And he's just being kind of rapey, creepy to this girl. That's not Dr. Moreau. No, I know. That's his okay, lieutenant. That's, yeah. And and that was a source of tension that seemed such a part of the story that uh-huh. I assumed that that's how it had to have been. And I... I, I even thought, like, how was this textually represented in the original book? But that seems like it's going to be a pretty important story element. I'll read anything that Gabriel Rodriguez does. I I just, I love his art. It's I really like it. It's super dynamic. It's super detailed. And it's it's just consistently really, really well done. I like the the newspaper clippings all over it. Uh, but they're, they're, like, giving you the history of Dr. Moreau and, and just... I don't know. I there, there's the, a little bit disappointed that uh, we haven't seen the good old uh, two legs good, four legs bad yet. I don't know what that means. Uh, you would know if you watched the movie. I, I I feel like I've tried to be humble and clear about my ignorance of this story. <laughs> what I really like I'm is start saying that humble and clear. Oh no, okay. two legs good, four legs bad. It's a study of who's the monster. Yeah. Right. Like, are the monsters the monsters, or is the guy that made the monsters the monster? Right. And it's it, when when you boil it down to that, it's not super cutting edge no. by any means because we've been doing that since Mary Shelley since, or since you know, like eighteen sixteen or whatever. Wrote this hundred years ago. It was H. G. Wells. Sorry, Orson uh, is a big old guy. Orson, voice of Unicron from the, the Transformers. Shadow, motherfucker. He's the Transformers voice. He was the first Shadow. He was the first Unicron. I think you'll like this wine that I have here. He's also uh, Citizen Kane. Are you familiar with Citizen Unicron. Kane? I've never seen it, no. Uh, I would give this... Dang, I would give this an 8. I can't gooey duck it, but that's about no. as... That's about as close to a gooey duck as I can get. No, I and I listen, I've got goo all over my hands on this table from House of X, so I don't know if I'm throwing other goo out at you. Um, I would give it a 7. Tell me about your boy. J-Lam? Jay Lem. Jeff Lemire. Jeff Lem. And Mike Diodato Jr. I like them both a lot. Yeah. Uh, they put out Berserker Unbound this week. And Berserker Unbound was promised to be Conan teleported to the present. And in issue one, we find Conan teleported to the present. <laughs> it that, is that, like... That's, that, like, that's it. When I saw, it was Emerald City. It was me and you and Justin at the retailer breakfast, and they showed the first sort of pages and announcement of this book. And it is, I think, an incredibly tired concept. 
It's like the reverse of an American Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Well, see, for me, it was, yeah, a kid in King Arthur's Court with the kid who was a baseball player who goes to King Arthur's Court. Which is an adaptation of that. Yeah, Yeah. and, like, but there's also a bunch of instances of movies where the old person comes to New York. Like, even Green Valley was kind of that, of, like, oh, is that big bus a big mechanical dragon? Like, I'm not excited. Dummies with technology. Yeah, I'm not excited to read that story, but it's J. Lem, so I'm going to read it. So we tried it. Yeah. And, and I uh, like Mike Diodato when he's good. I don't think he's been super on point lately, but this is the best Mike Diodato I've seen in years. I've never seen a Mike Diodato drawing I didn't like. Yeah, I mean, the story is a, a super badass uh, Conan slash Scald kind of character. Shout out to Aubrey Sitterson for Scald. Um, finds out that his wife and daughter have been killed while he was off killing people, and he fights... A shit ton of bad guys invading his village, and you get you get like all of the requisite Conan shots it's, that it's, you would expect. It's I would read this as a Conan comic, also. So he escapes into a cave, and uh, then he gets uh, disappeared magically into a forest, a spooky forest, Ooh. and he falls asleep. And when he wakes up, uh, like a modern homeless dude is poking him with a stick and and kind of giving him some shit, and he finds out that he's in the in the woods right outside of a big city uh and he doesn't speak the language because he speaks conanish or whatever it's conanish but conanish yeah. um and then it's end of part one i liked what you said Django, uh, of when you knew this book was coming out where you thought like everything that you thought issue one was going to be and where would it would end issue one is is the the tagline for the series <laughs> yep like it i read 22 pages and got one sentence out of it. I was a little bit bummed. But however, issue two or three, a solicitation for that, showed this Conan-looking character sitting around like a hobo campfire with this other homeless-looking guy with like a can of either beans or maybe homemade coffee, and they're sitting around this fire. And I was very interested in the idea of Jeff Lemire writing Conan out of time interacting with sad kids wandering around in the snow. That's basically what it is, isn't it? It's like, how does a caveman make a bindle stick? If we get to that. I give this first issue five. That's my lowest score in a long goddamn time. I'll give it a five also. Sell me on it. Oh my god, my pants don't fit. You flip it. You want me to sell this? Sell me this book. I'm going to read the next five issues well of course you you are you're a jlem guy i am but uh jlo i i I trust this creative team to not take on something as cliche as this first issue seems and uh okay uh, like the i think that the best thing i can do to sell somebody on a comic is tell them truthfully that i'm going to keep reading it yeah because i read a lot of comics and i didn't like this first issue very much at all it's technically it's fine. It just didn't uh, didn't deliver any kind of twist that I would like. But I know that Jeff Lemire is a, a writer that will give me what I want in the long run. I can't promise anything because I don't know what's actually going to happen. But I know it's going to get better than this kind of simplistic setup. I'm I'll bet that the first arc gets an eight out of me. Yeah. I wouldn't mind getting an eight out of you myself. Absolute Carnage, number one, by Donnie Cates and Ryan Stegman. Now, Django, you're my inks, J.P. Meyer, color artist, Frank Martin. 
Django, you're my symbiote. You're my guy. You're my venom, carnage guy. You walk into the building and I see dark sweat dripping off you like you were just pumping iron with your symbiote in the gym, using it, milking it, becoming one with it. We are Django. What did you think? No, no, keep going. Just, no, that was all of it. I went longer than I meant to. Uh, okay, so full disclosure, I haven't read Venom in... How, I don't even know A what year? issue it's on. You, you read the first couple. The like, first two or three issues. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, because you've, you've been dipping in and out of it, right? I've read all of it, yeah. you read it all. I think that this book, this triple-sized behemoth of an absolute carnage number one does a really good job of recapping what's been going on with venom and what's been going on with all the retcon stuff that our buddy donny cates has been doing d cates welcome to the cates gate just beyond the mind's eye the creaky foggy gates open to expose the wanting chest of donny cates and your name written in blood on that imagine hairless skin no no keep going no i i can't i always i, I run out halfway through and then i go more uh i really really like this comic that's awesome. What do you give it? One out of ten right now. Nine? It was holy shit good. I really liked it also. Um, I, I don't even really... We're following Eddie Brock, who's got a kid that thinks he's his uncle. Um, we we get apparently a recap. I thought this was new information, but we find out that the god, the, the, the symbiote god Null has been dogpiled in space by a bunch of other symbiotes, and that's what makes the symbiote planet, which I thought was... One of the coolest concepts I've ever heard. Mm. Like, holy cow. This is a good jumping on point because oh, yeah. I didn't feel lost at all. I've, I've heard little bits and pieces of this, but the, the recap is really, really well done. And then anything that's not covered in the recap is covered while people are running or turning into Venom or talking to Spider-Man. The, the, the scene in the diner with Spider-Man was awesome. Every single drawing in this book is gorgeous. gorgeous. It's he he gets a lot of uh just a whole lot of emotion out of people the 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 gross stuff like the cool thing about carnage and I, like i've heard some people shit talking carnage lately and i don't understand it because he looks awesome he's a stone cold killer and and he's he's related to venom like what of all of that isn't awesome i think he's like maybe it's radical i think he's the generation like to me, he's like the generation right after Deadpool's Deadpool kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. He's he's me. I don't love Deadpool. I love Carnage. He, he's yeah. like, yeah. He's, he's just, like he's a serial killer who just doesn't give a shit, and he looks cooler than Venom even. Yeah. That's how, how can you go wrong? He he pulled all of the spines out of his victims just as a message to Eddie Brock. Yeah, we get to talk to the Maker. Oh, I love him. Yeah, evil. Fi- the ultimate universe reed richards who's a bad guy who's been in our universe for a while who hickman's used a lot uh love him and we get spider-man trying to save norman osborn who thinks that he's cletus cassidy because carnage has fucked him up so much the scene though of cletus cassidy himself wandering through the prison like pulling these carnage larva out of him and infecting people oh, yeah was yeah. so good yeah cletus himself 
looks so much like an evil Ashton. He looks, <laughs> but is like, and so that's Norman. But the actual like this Cletus scene of him walking yeah. is so good, and I I love Cletus Cassidy. Yeah, and the the when you finally see Norman, he looks like the Joker. Yeah, um, that's true. I didn't think about that, but you're right. Yeah, I, I would say this book kind of made the last five months of Venom books obsolete. I really like Donny Cates. I think. Was it in this? You were saying that somewhere they said that this was just going to be a three-issue thing that became an event. Yeah. The Venom book, the second half of sort of the Venom series, has been real lackluster. Not real. It's still a fine book to be reading, but you can tell that they hit the brakes. So you think they had to set it up because they they they're like, oh, hang on, let's I make it an event. I think they decided to set it up and then dragged it out because this couldn't come out in the release window for a while, like after the X Men stuff, after the War of Realm stuff. So then. Right. Venom has sort of been like trying to fill space since then and not give too much of this information away. And then it retreaded a lot of it here, which isn't bad because I hope that people read it and like it that have not been reading all of Venom. And I've like, it's perfect for you. It's, it's yeah. still great. Um, I'm, I'm definitely uh, Venom curious and carnage <laughs> symbiote curious, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I just symbiote, symbiote curious. curious. I, I just haven't had. I guess the impetus to keep up with it. I missed an issue and, and never went back uh, because those, some of those early Venom issues sold out real fast and, and were suddenly key issues. And, and I have not a whole lot of patience when that happens. So I've got a sort of a, a tangential thing I want to explore with you here All right. that this book made me right. think about. And I've been, I've been thinking about it a lot. Um, this book, I, I love the art also, and I, I love the writing. I think that like when Spider-Man was introduced, it stepped the whole thing up. Mm-hmm. I think Donny Cates, I've liked the Venom book, but it has been a little bit meh lately. Mm-hmm. But when you get Donny Cates writing Spider-Man, interplaying with, with Eddie, I think that their relationship is really rich, and he explores a lot of that stuff in a, in a way that I think is... Uh, it just elevated the whole book. Getting those two to get guys together is awesome. I hope they spend a lot of time together. I hope he's in all of it. That's when it hit its stride to me. And using Spider-Man as kind of the Luke Skywalker, the what's going on here, mm-hmm. and, and having him ask the questions that a new reader would have, I think was really cool. I love this art. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really cool. And as I was reading it, I could see a lot of influence of 90s comic book art. And I've been okay. listening to a lot of that cartoonist kayfabe channel. With Ed Piscor and Jim uh, Rugg. Rug. And they're both highly influenced by the 90s. And what that made me think as I was reading this book is there is a whole generation of artists who are highly influenced by the 90s. The Jim Lees, um, the Wills Protachios, the Liefelds, the Todd McFarlands. Yep. Because in that era, it was so fucking cool. Yeah. It looked so cool. But I think that nowadays we sort of talk about the 90s with shame i think that we try and joke about the big muscles and the patches and the big guns and we talk about it with a degree of resentment and shame can we say a, a degree of derision what's that mean well it's just alliterative oh I, like I, derisively yeah. Yeah. discuss so, but so as i was thinking about it is like we have a generation of artists like ed piscor jim rugg and ryan stegman who grew up loving those comics they learned to draw because of those comics they read because of those comics and yet as an industry we sort of try and shamefully move away from that like yeah that was the 90s but we're doing this other stuff but if we continue doing that we're not going to honor an entire generation of artists like a seven year period of people who grew up deciding they wanted to make comics because of that like 
we have not carved a place in the industry for people influenced by that. And I think that there are way more people influenced by that era of comics than the industry likes to acknowledge. Yeah, but you can be influenced by something that sucks and create something better out of it. But we don't right? because let people be proud of that influence. Sure. And I think sure. that that's the really important part is it is a big part of influence. And I think that you kind of have to sneak it in. They should do something better for sure. But that we haven't found the right way to funnel that influence does that make sense? Who's who's the Spider-Man guy, the the artist that you don't love? Ramos. Ramos. Yeah. This looks like more realistic Ramos to me. All over. This this looks like like Ramos 30 degrees different. Yeah, normally my my degree is 50. I would say it's like yeah, thir- like it it is so, highly elevated, but I can see what you're saying about some of the eyes and some of the angles. Ramos for, for is me, very manga. Yeah, for me, this is this is this looks more influenced by Ramos than uh, any of the '90s artists. Yeah. Um, but I, I I like what you're saying. Can you think of any other artists that you would say are super influenced by '90s artists? Uh, I think that and, there and is kept kept that. Well, like an amount of that style? Well, I know Ryan Stegman and I know Ed Piscor and I know Jim Rugg super are. Okay. I think that Ed Piscor looks nothing like those guys. Yeah, but though. he loves it. And like his, he just did a variant cover for Major X that came out this week or his other things really do incorporate. Like when he's allowed to get real macho, he does. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think there are a lot of people who have that that aren't allowed to do it because there is a sort of editorial mandate of like, listen, we have to view this 10 years as a mistake. I I just think that, I think that we're not creating a spot in this industry that says, hey, you can be influenced by this stuff and like it and do something better. Like, there's, I think, a lot of people. And I think that we kind of force people to hide that. In the same way that I think a lot of musicians really like, you know, like manufactured pop music. It's a math equation to like pop music, but you have to hide it between time signatures and all this different stuff because you feel guilty about that. I I feel like there's a degree of that in That's I I think that part of what makes the 90s kind of laughable is that most of those artists never really graduated or moved on from what they did then. So if you look at Rob Liefeld's art now, it's pretty much the same. He he's his heads have gotten shorter. Would you say that? And that's about it. Jim Lee has gotten sloppier and needs more. What about Bill Sienkiewicz? Bill Sienkiewicz was doing that shit in the eighties. I'm just saying, uh, like, not. I don't think Bill Sienkiewicz ever did quite that same thing. But I think that when you are an innovator, when you have a new voice, mm-hmm. I think it's hard to then move away from that new voice. I think that like. Sienkiewicz is still kind of doing Sienkiewicz, and he hasn't done anything new in 20 years, but he's still, his stuff is still unique. But if you look at his art now and from the 80s, he's gotten better at doing what he does. Yeah. And I think that most of the 90s artists have gotten less good at what what they did. I I would agree, with the exception Um, of, like, maybe Todd. Yeah. We haven't seen a ton of no, Todd McFarlane stuff. Art, is, it but, doesn't look like it's worse. I would say the other guys largely are actually worse. Uh, Greg Capullo, he came out of he came out of the Todd McFarlane school and was just a straight up Todd McFarlane ripoff. And by the time he got onto Batman, he was doing something that looked 
like Greg Capullo rather than yeah. a Todd McFarlane song being covered note for note. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think it's cool to, I think it's good to have those influences. I'm super grateful that Ed Piscor doesn't draw like Rob Liefeld right. and that uh, Ryan Stegman has kind of his own thing going on. You, you can see, like, he's drawing Bagley's Spider-Man. It's, it, it's straight up Mark Bagley's Spider-Man. Yeah, you know it is in the eyes. Um, the eyes, the, the weird muscles. Like, those are Mark Bagley muscles, every one of them. I just mean, like, I just think that we need to find a way to be proud of that era of comic books because I think that we all, there's a thousand web pages trashing these artists and trashing this era. I think we need, like, the, the speculator boom was a big part of it, but it was some of the coolest shit. It got a whole bunch of people to be into comics and Millions. want to make comics. And check this out. I, I I don't have numbers for you, but I'll bet that if we looked at the under $10 back issues that we've sold, a ton of them are still A ton that, of them yeah. are the 90s comics. Yeah. So like we just discovered that we had zero copies of Amazing Spider-Man from 300 to 400 downstairs. Mm-hmm. Not zero. We had but four. Yeah. I came up here to our the, our podcast room adjacent airlock and grabbed almost 80 copies of Spider-Man comics from that range and brought them downstairs and people were super stoked about it. And so I think that there's a lot of nostalgia and appreciation for that, but I think it's also cool to shit on it. And that's my problem is just I think that I think we can get over shitting on that stuff now. I th- it's obviously got its problems, but it's the evolution of comic books at a time, and it got us to where we are. And I think that we should try and find a way to honor it. That's, that's a super tangential <laughs> thought that I've just been having for a couple of days Listen, now. I've never been on a Lee's Jeans commercial. Yeah. And until I am, I can't really legitimately talk shit on Rob Liefeld. If you haven't seen Rob Liefeld's Lee's Jean commercial, you should check it out. What do you give Absolute Carnage? I'm sticking with a nine. Yeah. I'm going to go 8.5. Really good comic. It was 60 pages. It only felt like 40, you know, like, which is a a weird thing to say, but yeah. Lois Lane number two by Greg Rucka, Mike Perkins, and uh, Paul Paul Mounts on colors. Simon Boland lettering. Did you notice any bad lettering in here? I haven't read that yet. Very right. excited to. Have not yet. I didn't notice any. Yeah. This issue is really good, uh, kind of continuing the character study of Lois on the case. Um, Lois also kind of being known by the world as a slut. Whoa. Because of the it, Superman? In, in the words of the comic, like okay. because she got caught making out with Superman, but she's married to Clark. And so people are coming down on her pretty hard for and that. And they say that word? They did in the last issue. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. did. And, and it's it's like another, they, they have another discussion about it. And, uh, you know, it's it, she, she's like, no, I'm not going to, like Superman shouldn't come out and talk about this. I'm not going to talk about it. They're, all the, all the, People who are angry about this are just going to twist whatever we say. And so it's like a, an interesting comment on uh, media right now. Yeah. Which the other issue was also. It's it's kind of, I think, going to be the theme of this this series. Uh, we've got we've got the question. Renee Montoya is the question, which is awesome. The whole issue seemed to just sort of 
try to get us to the, the, the last couple of pages, which was Lois interviewing a dude, somebody shooting at them, the dude getting killed, and um, Lois not being sure which of them was the target. Between her and between her the and the dude that she oh. was gonna gonna interview, um, so like I liked it. This is this is super slow moving political thriller, which I respect. I think I would like it more as a trade paperback. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, it's it's been good cliffhangers for both issues. Or it's gar- <laughs> What? Art's gorgeous. Art's gorgeous. Art's gart in a thirth. <laughs> Um, yeah, the art's great. The, the, the story is interesting. Um, I'm just not sure that it, it's being written as a serial thing as much as, uh, you know, here's, here's a, here's a final 12 issue product. I wouldn't discourage anybody from reading this in issues. Who knows what's going to happen in the next few issues. It really is super good. And this is, uh, so with Mr. Miracle, we saw DC kind of start this 12 issue maxi series thing in the, in the current landscape of comic books and they're doing Lois Lane. They're doing, um, Martian Manhunter. They're doing Jimmy Olsen and they just did Tom, the Raven one. That was 12 was issues. That 12? Yeah. yeah. So like they're not bite sized. This is an entire meal. And, I, I I like what they're doing with it. I really like Maxi series. Jeff, did you read any Grant Morrison books this week? I did. I read twelve of them this week. Oh, that's true. You did. Um, I just read the one. A lot of times I say I beat my way through twelve uh, Grant Morrison books, but this time I just kind of surfed my way through all of All Star Superman, and I loved it. You liked it. I liked it. Isn't that a great fucking lot. book, man? It's so positive, and the. <sighs> Noticing some of the craft behind it tickled me. Every issue is about time. There's a time constraint in every single issue. Well, the whole thing is how do you fit the last big version of your life in 12 days? The whole thing is a time constraint, but then each issue is a time constraint. And then early on, uh, that, that dude who I've never heard of before, who's a Greek or a Roman god or whatever. Samson. Samson tells a, a Jesus character... Mm-hmm. tells Superman, Jesus, that he has to complete these heroic tasks Trials, before yeah. he dies, right? And and so like it's it's just it's like it's like an onion made out of time specific things that have to happen and every single issue has a a ticking clock. That is a book that where I think the absolute edition is totally worth it because he clearly illustrates the 12 trials and what they were and and everything mm-hmm. that went into it. Um yeah, man, the issue where he creates the alternate reality that then has Simon and Schuster in it, and that the the doctor who kind of yeah Quintum. Is, is just kind of present through the whole thing, yeah. and just he's as good as Superman. Is Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat character? Yeah, yeah, but but he's he's just a straight up and kind person through the whole thing, and this this super genius who's trying to help, and like. I spent the whole time kind of expecting a turn to that character, yeah. expecting him to be like, oh, fuck you. I wasn't working on a cure after all. And no, he was. He, he was. No, that's, that is, 
I've always said, I think that in a thousand years, when far future civilizations look back on our text, they're going to find the Old Testament, they're going to find the New Testament, and they're going to find absolute all-star Superman. <laughs> Very glad to hear that you liked that on a reread, because it's, it's one of my you know, three Desert Island books. I think I read it while it was coming out, but also looking at the release schedule, it like it's totally possible that I missed the last three or four issues mm-hmm. and, and never even really realized that it was missing an act. How about that art, though? That art is amazing, yeah. even though, like, to quote Ron Warner, who I love a lot, mm-hmm. um, Frank quietly draws lips like worms. <laughs> Whatever he's doing, it's fine with me. Um, this is not Grant Morrison and Frank Quiley. This is Grant Morrison and Liam Sharp. Grant Morrison, uh, The Green Lantern, issue number 10. Oh, Sharp. I thought it was Sharpe. I'm going to give this issue a 10. <laughs> That's a big old gooey duck right there. Um, I like our Foley this week. The first couple pages of this, each page is just introducing a new Green Lantern from a different Earth of the 52. What I really like about this is it doesn't adhere to any exploration of the multiverse so far as I know it. So the first one is you're meeting this Green Lantern where they're summoned by the custodians of the cosmos. (laughs) This issue is so definitively Grant Morrison in that to me, what he does is he walks the line between 70s tongue-in-cheek comics and then very heady comics. Mm-hmm. But he he pays such deference to the tongue-in-cheek kind of absurdity of the 70s, which I think a lot of people write off as stupid. And he he loves it and plays with it and he honors it. Do you he, think it was tongue-in-cheek in the 70s? No. Okay. But but I think that that was just the logical extension of where comics was. It wasn't yeah. respected as a deep medium, so they were saying, I don't know, just do these things. Right. But I think that if you look at it right, that can be very high concept. So we're meeting a bunch of these Green Lanterns, and they all have different personalities. Very particularly, there's a psychedelic as fuck Earth-47 <clears throat> stoner Green Lantern fighting the blue meanies from the fucking yellow submarine. And then there's a Batman Green Lantern. And... Is that the Batman Green Lantern from the no. Elseworlds book? Well, there's there's like an there's Eduardo really Barreto Elseworlds book. There's a real the only one I know is there's a really famous Ethan Van Syver Green Lantern Batman stuff from Jeff Johns run a while back. Mm, this is even before that. Yeah, so so maybe it's tied to that. I just sort of put it as a new one. Um, but we there's a sort of multiverse crisis and it's gathering all of these different Green Lanterns together. It was awesome to have just read Final Crisis and had been done a podcast about it because this issue really did feed into and talk about a lot of Grant Morrison multiversity concepts. It recruits a whole bunch of characters to handle a threat. I really like where this series is going right now. I stopped, gosh, I fell off at like issue eight and then I read, I didn't read issue eight, but I read issue nine, which led right into this one. Dang, Um, so I'm more current on Green Lantern than you are right now. Are you? That surprises me. Yeah. This issue suffered in the same way that Final Crisis did. Time and space collapses and things. I think that Grant Morrison writes that idea in a very uh, coherent way to him that makes sense, that intentionally makes the reader confused. This issue has that going on for sure. But there are moments where Stoner Green Lantern talks to Batman Green Lantern and I laughed out loud because I could picture Roman reading it and laughing out loud because the way that Roman talks about being a stoner as a guy that smokes a lot of weed 
and Roman is a guy who does not. But he always talks like a stoner. Roman stoner verbiage is just like 25 years delayed. Chains of love, brother Bat. And and Grant Morrison's is also just 20 years. He was there doing it at the time, but I think that he likes to sort of make it 70s-esque. What did you think of the... Uh, the orrery as depicted here because it's very different than what we've seen in Final Crisis. I really liked I it. I liked it more. Yeah. Um, but also we're not dealing with like the the stick up the butt um, monitors here. Well, I think the important thing to, to bear in mind is that Final Crisis existed. Multiversity existed several years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, Multiversity came out Final Crisis came out before Grant Morrison created that map of the multiverse. Right. And this adheres to that map of the multiverse. Okay. Anyway, this is head up your own ass Grant Morrison stuff. It's my favorite issue of the whole series. I give it a 10. I loved it. It made me giggle. It made me think big. It made me want to talk to Roman. Uh, I I think it's fantastic. If you liked Final Crisis or Multiversity, I think that you would like this. I read this also. Yeah. Did you give it 10 Quapos? No. I give it a 7. Uh... I'm no. glad you. I'm glad you guys like it. Uh, it's 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 a really good mix of the Grant Morrison I like and the Grant Morrison I don't like. Yeah. And while you were talking about this, now while I was flipping through it again, I was thinking maybe I like the Grant Morrison who is constrained to characters that don't talk like he wants them to talk. So like in All-Star Superman or in JLA, he's got kind of a style sheet that he has to adhere to in order to tell these stories about these superheroes that kind of have a specific way of talking. In this one, like we get shit like by the master algorithm, some of the greatest heroes of the Superwatch, um, the galaxy's mightiest mega champions laid low. And that's him clearly just sort of having fun with the 70s. And I don't like it. Yeah. And and I'm glad that you guys like it mm-hmm. because otherwise I don't think we would carry this like we do and we wouldn't like we wouldn't be excited about it. It like also we are. sells real well. Yeah, and, and I think that I think there's a really good place for it, but I just just now after reading after beating my way through Final Crisis, after kind of uh, Brad Pitt beating people up in Once Upon a Time and Hollywooding my way through all-Star Superman, which is to say floating on air and having a great time with it, and then reading this, which is a, a mix of the two for me. I had to reread the middle portion two times because it, it was yeah. not clear what was going on. I'm a busy man. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I like that sometimes he accepts some reins on him. I think that, to me, what you just said is that um, when he's dealing with my, multiverse things... He really, when he's talking about a different world, he embodies that world when he's talking about it, and it drastically changes the language and the tone and everything. It slows me down and yeah. and, and makes me not like it as much. Yeah, and I, that yeah. totally makes sense to me. And I, it, like, I'm not saying it's bad by any stretch. I think I think it's a really good version of this thing that I don't. But it turns have to it love. into work to yeah. an amount. Yeah, and and that's not my reason for reading comics, and a lot of people really. Enjoy that. Yeah. Okay, let's get to our final book of the week here. No, yeah, let's just skip it. Let's just let's stop now. I read 10th Archie, The Married Life Anniversary, which takes Archie comics 10 years in the future after he married either Be- Betty or Veronica, and they were super depressing, both of them. Really? Yeah. In the first one, he married Veronica, and 
Veronica's dad overworks him and they have to go to marriage counseling and it's super depressing. In the second one, he got married to Betty and they're way happier, but they don't, they can't afford their life and his dad gets dementia and then has to be in charge of making the decision. It's Dang. super depressing. And then in the post credit sequence, we find out that his last name is actually... Archibald. McTaggart. Oh, who knew? Moira. <laughs> Deceased, number four. When we talked yesterday, you hadn't read this. Since in the interim, you've read this. What'd you think? Yeah, uh, I think this is my favorite appearance. Uh, well, it's one of my two favorite appearances <laughs> of uh, Captain Adam this week. Yeah, weird, right? Uh, is yeah. that Giganta? Yeah, dude. Okay, okay so Tom Taylor keeps pulling our heart, on our heartstrings. This one made me cry. Did it? Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> just a little bit. Well, yeah. It was it was the scene where Superman flies his mom back to the top of the Daily Planet and it's like it's four words from three different people and it just it tells you about how Superman's dad died and and his mom is super sad about it. Yeah. And you know, I'm a little bit weak for that shit right now, but holy cow, I was I was sitting here reading this and I was like, oh, now I'm now I'm a little bit teary. Man, our um there's no tactful way to put this, but our playing fields have really balanced out in the last like three months. Yeah. And I'm really glad that you I glad is not the right word. But I'm I there's a degree of catharsis in hearing you talk about crying in a book because the Django that I met three years ago <laughs> that we talked about comic books, was that wasn't a big part of our comics discussions. You know, I think our comics discussions from three years ago, if we talked about these books today, would be me shitting all over Green Lantern also. Yeah, we um, talked a lot about Green Lantern and Grant, Grant Morrison originally. Well, just just because I, I, I am more sensitive to other people's perspectives on, on story and... and like accepting of the idea that something that doesn't work for me works for them. Yeah, man. You took mushrooms. I appreciate you. <laughs> this uh, this whole book, I mean, it's it's just continuing sort of the who's still around in this post-apocalyptic techno-zombie world. We see uh, Captain Adam get the ever-loving shit beat out of him by... Uh, Oh, wait. No, that's a different book. Yeah, there was two Captain Adam Holy books, cow. which is and, so and he, weird because we don't ever see him. And he did get the shit beat out of him. In both. In Batman and in, in this. Batman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in this one, Ray Palmer go, gets real small and goes inside of these zombified people in order to try to fix them. And what Captain Adam doesn't know is that Ray Palmer turned bad he was inside infected, of yeah. them and then jumped into Captain Adam and... Fucks that guy up. Yeah. Uh, to the extent that by the end, he blows up uh, Washington. A lot of the world. And Metropolis. Like, all of our heroes that we've been following are in Metropolis when it explodes because Ray Palmer infected Captain Adam. And in between that, we just get these kind of heart-wrenching scenes with all of these heroes that and heroines that we love. Um Harley Quinn sees all of her buddies, Catwoman and Batwoman and uh, Huntress and Batgirl, turn bad. And she gets saved mm -hmm. in the most romantic way possible by uh, Pamela. Um, 
poison, poison ivy, ivy yeah, yeah. like squishing everybody, all all the bad girls with with her plants. Um, the, the the thing that made us decide that oh yeah, right, we have to talk about this is when Giganta attacks, and honestly, when Giganta attacked, because I'm not. Giant women aren't something that I track in, they are, in they my are comics. for Roman, though. I know Roman tracks them, but when she attacked, I was like, it took me a second to decide if I was reading a Marvel or a DC book. Yeah. Because giant people is more of a Marvel thing than a for DC sure. thing in general. And uh, it's she, one of the most beautiful panels, the, the fallout from this event. Yeah. She gets a, a hole blown through her head by Cyborg, and he's just standing in the middle of that hole, and it's... It looks like something from the anime Attack on Titan, which I've recently just started watching, but it's this horrific, giant person with no pupils laying down, and their head is just the whole page, and there's a perfect circle blown out of their head, and it's Cyborg standing through it, and it is a very powerful single page. And it's Vic... Cyborg just delivering that that message that you always have to deliver in a zombie story at some point like dude these aren't your friends mm-hmm. these are they're they're gone and it's okay to kill them uh, and then like the very next page also got me pretty good where Alfred gets out of the the batwing yeah. and tells um, tells Damien that Batman said that uh, he was super proud of him and he should have told him that every day and that that also got me. Um, yeah, I don't know how this guy is. This is a clumsy story that he's telling masterfully. Yeah, it is. So he's been writing Injustice. He wrote that starting years ago. So not super different from this. No, it's not super different. I think the big thing is, is that book has a, a pretty large readership for what it is, which is mm-hmm. a video game tie-in comic. Yeah, um, but more. It is. It is more. And he's developed this whole world. I think the problem with that one is it. It will always be beholden and tied to a video game. Right. And this one is almost the same thing with an entirely different plot. Yeah. That is beholden to nothing. So at the end of the day, this will always just be a single volume that you can buy. And I think that it stands much stronger because of that. They're doing a sequel. Are they? Or a one-shot spinoff they, or They're doing some a one-shot that ties in the middle of it, yeah, yeah. There's no way DC's going to let this drop. No, and Marvel has already now written Contagion, which is basically a response to this that comes out in three months, and it's the Marvel Universe doing the same thing. Good job, guys. It, um, it's it's Which only speaks to the fact that this is clearly turning heads. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's really good and incredibly heartfelt. I think that... Tom Taylor has written a lot of stuff that I don't care a lot about, and in the last year, he's really stepped up his game between Marvel and DC Comics. He's doing both. They're all heartfelt and funny and go- and very, very good to me. I don't want to bring this down, but do you think Tom Taylor's dad died lately? Oh, fuck, man. Because every issue of this has <laughs> had some really low blows. Like, the first issue had Batman's son biting him and infecting him the next issue had batman's dad having to shoot him and kill him i don't remember what it was in number three but there was like that's that's been a theme through this whole series is like fathers or sons hurting each other yeah but also like the spider-man issue that he wrote that we loved the cancer patient like 
there's maybe, maybe he just knows our triggers. Yeah, like he's well, but that one it's not even like a father son issue, but it's also it's that like what um, debt do we owe to the generation below us when we can help? Like it, it's not father son issues, but it's like it's it's broader. It's when we can be Mentor, the father. Or the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, he did that one, and then the Spider Man War of the Realms tie in where Spider Man really rose up and sort of like had to. It's almost tongue in cheek, but like be kind of the father for this Pegasus race, you know, right. and then they all died. And then how do you deal with that loss? Like maybe he just deals with father issues a ton himself personally. There's a lot of ripe fruit to be picked with that storytelling stuff. As a male myself, I identify with that. There's also probably a huge number of stories rife to be told, like mother and daughter stories as, as well. So it's not singular to that, but, but we are this exposed is like- to this. If if you were gonna say this is a dude comic or a chick comic, it's pretty it's pretty dude. This out. is a pretty dude comic. Yeah, and it, it's got a lot of dad issues in it. Um, and it would be awesome to see more like mother issue comics as well of this vein. But uh, I am really pleased with this one. Is the cover reference that we're both looking at? Uh, Final destination. That's what I thought. That's what I yeah. told Roman and Sam. Okay, yeah. cool. And so one quibble. Please quibble me. The main cover for this issue, yeah, has Sergeant Rock, yeah, a zombie Batman, a zombie Wonder Woman, the A cover, and a zombie Superman. Yeah, it's a great cover. None of those happen in this issue. Yeah, like that's that's a that's a B cover if I ever seen one. If I ever seen one, I've never seen a B cover, but if I did, that would be one. (laughs) Um, what do you give it? Eight and a half. I'm going to give it an 8. I think I like the previous issue a little bit more, but it's still a super good comic. Dude, hang on. Look at, look at this panel again and, so and say 8. I'm not trying to change your mind. I just want you to face face facts while you say 8. I'm holding 8. All right. All right. I Because I, I think I'm that I I'm not trying gave, to change you. I think that he get, I know. You're always not trying to change me. Um, 8. I, I think and that... And a half. That last issue, man, still to me the best scene of the whole series was Superman putting his father in that thing and either killing him or just sealing the locks on it. But that to me is is the king scene of this series. And that's interesting because I got more emotional impact from him delivering his mom. Yeah, and I don't even to, to the fully... to the roof of the Daily Planet. Right. After he had done that. And they, they talk about it, but they do it in four words that aren't it's it's yeah really really well done and they don't even give total resolution to what happened there no because um, there's no fucking time they got to kill right. giganta with a big old hole in the head listen we just recorded a 19 hour podcast yeah. are you going to be able to edit this down to something reasonable 19 are you hours just, are you going to bite the bullet or are you going to are you going to try to whittle it down to one Gosh. and a half or two well what's what's, what's first your... what's first worth mentioning is that yes we have tried to do an entire 24-hour podcast, mm-hmm. and we and, fell short because we have to sleep for five hours at some point. And a lot point. of it was garbage, honestly. Yeah. Like, yeah. you guys think we're funny? We're not. We just... There's Jeff 50. is funny. He edits our comments together. Like, none of what you hear on the podcast was actually said in sequence. We right. just say words, and Jeff patches them together right. uh, a lot like Ragman. Yeah. If you were to Roman's take favorite. if you were to take the Oxford English dictionary and you were to cut out all of the words and then eat them and then poop them out uh, mm-hmm. I would be combining sort of uh, mod, hodgepodge mod podging those together into a podcast which is what I've done here. So on October 3rd 
That's a Thursday, October yeah. 3rd. We don't have a time yet. We do have a venue. Yeah. We're going to record episode 150 of this podcast that you're listening to uh, at the Shakedown in downtown Bellingham. And I don't want to say that we're going to give a prize for whoever travels the farthest to see it. I'll give a prize. Anybody who goes more than six blocks to see it is going to get a high five at the very least. We don't have all of the crazy details worked out yet. We're hoping for an opening band. uh, I mean, an opening podcast, uh, maybe some sort of shirt thing. Um, Drink specials. I'm hoping for an Aquaman shot, which is just a shot of water. Yeah, that's important. I also want um, some gift certificates. There's going to be gift certificates given out. The person who oh, comes yeah. the, from the farthest away, you're getting a gift certificate. Uh-huh. Um, the person you, who sits the closest without getting ejected, gift certificate. If you ask a question, $5 gift certificate. Bang. Bang. That's like Bang. a free comic for asking a question. So what we're saying is that October 3rd, we're going to be doing a live version of this podcast. If you're listening right now, we need you there because there's a great chance that you're going to be looking at a couple very awkward buddies I don't that know if need your support. I don't know if you've been in the shakedown, Jeff. I have. Have you been in the shakedown when there's no one in there? Uh, no. It's awful. Yeah. Let's not have that happen. I sure hope not. I, I hope that we have at least like four people holding up styrofoam to absorb the echoes the third is a thursday yeah which means that the second is a wednesday yeah which means that the first is a tuesday right are we going to be doing a podcast in public in front of people on a fifth week oh my god we have to look (laughs) at books we could find out what books are going to release this month right now. And it's going to be an all-question-and-answer podcast because otherwise we're just talking about annuals. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for the questions that you've sent us. We still have a couple uh, left over from episode 140. Josh, I'm going to answer your questions when we get four people on here who can actually talk about good X-Men stories to read. Um, you need actually a lot of people to do that. Andrew, thank you. Mike Moore, thank you. Nathan, Matt, Thank you so much, everybody. We look forward to seeing all of you live on October 3rd. And we've asked them to do the nice thing and review us, right? Oh, can you get them okay. fucking, please, okay. here's, for fuck's here's sake, the deal. everybody. I think, I think that we've got all the people that we can get by saying, please go review us. It's really helpful. Right. So listen, you're a sack of shit if you don't go review us by the next episode. Yeah, like this is your last warning. Listen, garbage people, here's the deal. Yeah, we're not insulting you because you're not a garbage person. No, no, you did a review. But there are some gar- garbage people to your tangent. We have upwards of nine listeners, and we have downwards of seven reviews. So two of you got to get your shit together. Yeah, that's the thing. I'm talking to you. And well, you. You too. You too, for sure. Bono, listen. Hefe. If we can get 50 reviews on uh, iTunes uh Apple Podcasts, yeah, yeah. like I, I think all those reviews are going to carry over when they kill iTunes. If we can get fifty reviews, I'd like to commit to a one-hour video podcast. Yeah. Oh, fuck yeah! All right, fifty yeah. reviews. Fifty reviews. I'll go more than a one-hour video podcast. Oh, do you want to do something crazy? Let's do a live show for one fifty at that. Twenty-four hours. Thanks. I'm Django, and I'm Jeff. You don't think that was too mean? Like, do you think we're going to lose listeners over this? Because the brutal, the the abrupt way in which we just said our names and no tagline, or because of this whole like four know, minute like I, thing. I, I called them. I called them sacks of shit. I said they were shit in the yeah, bed. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. called them like motherfuckers. I called them. I called them every name in the book. Yeah, I know the book, book and the book is big. Oh, it's a it's a big book. It's a big bed shitting book. Yeah. Oh gosh, I'm sorry.